Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. I'm Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons podcast, where we're going to discuss one of the most pressing and interesting legal cases presented in recent months uh, regarding the violence in Charlottesville a few years ago. We're going to speak with Amy Spitalnik, who is the executive director of Integrity First for America, the civil rights nonprofit that spearheaded the successful landmark lawsuit against the hate groups responsible for the Charlottesville violence. Amy has served as communications director and senior policy advisor to the New York Attorney General and communications advisor and spokesperson for the New York City Mayor. She frequently appears in national media and has been named a Woman in Power Fellow at the 92nd Street Y, a Truman National Security Project Fellow, and a City and State 40 Under 40 Rising Star. Amy Spitalnik, thank you so much for joining us on the College Commons podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to ask you to start by giving us a brief refresher on what exactly happened in August 2017 in Charlottesville. It's so easy to forget that just four years ago in an American city, neo-Nazis, white supremacists and hate groups were so emboldened, so empowered that they effectively stormed that city and attacked people based on their race, their religion or their willingness to defend the rights of their neighbors. But that's, of course, precisely what happened. Under the guise of protesting the removal of a Confederate statue, these extremists planned a weekend of violence. First, many of us remember the images of neo-Nazis with tiki torches marching on the University of Virginia, chanting things like Jews will not replace us and blood and soil, where they ultimately surrounded a small group of peaceful counter-protesters at the Thomas Jefferson statue, including a number of our plaintiffs. They kicked, punched, beat them up, threw fuel and lit torches at them. One of our plaintiffs, an African-American undergrad at the time, said he thought he was going to die. And nearby, an interfaith gathering had to shelter in place. It was so unsafe outside their doors. The violence, of course, continued throughout the weekend. Um, On Saturday, August 12th, where the local synagogue in downtown Charlottesville was ultimately surrounded by neo-Nazis who uh, were carrying semi-automatic weapons, chanting things like Sieg Heil, talking about, quote, torching those Jewish monsters via their online chats. The synagogue evacuated congregants and Torah scrolls out the back. Violence continued throughout the day in which a a peaceful group of clergy who had gathered to counter-protest hate were attacked by these extremists. And of course, the day culminated in the car attack in which James Fields drove his car into a crowd of peaceful counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer, injuring many others who have been peacefully protesting, including a number of our plaintiffs. And what's important to understand and what became crystal clear to the jury and I think to the world during the course of our trial earlier this year is that that violence was no accident. It was planned meticulously in advance on social media, via text messages and in-person conversations and meetings. Every detail was discussed in advance from the mundane and banal, what to wear, what to bring for lunch, will mayonnaise spoil in the sun, to the vile and the violent. 
um, how to, quote, crack skulls, whether they could even hit protesters with cars and claim self-defense. And as the jury heard during trial, this entire weekend was really painted by the defendants and their supporters as a, quote, racial holy war, uh, an intentionally violent effort to promote their vile view for what this country should be in pursuit of a white ethno state um, and in opposition to Jews, black people and any other um, minority that doesn't fit into their vision for this country. People around the country debated the notion promoted by then President Trump that there were, quote unquote, fine people on both sides. And the intimation with that phrase that the violence was also somehow comparable on both sides. Do I understand that you're arguing the opposite, that the violence was, in fact, specific and preponderant among the hate groups who planned the march and that the march was fully intended to wreak violence? That's correct. On one side were largely Charlottesville community members who were peacefully counter protesting against white supremacists who were descending on their town, on their college campus, on their city. Um, and they had come out to peacefully speak out against hate. On the other side was an organized effort by the defendants in our lawsuit, the most notorious neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and hate groups in this country, to plan, execute, and then celebrate violence under the guise of protesting the removal of the statue. But as our lawsuit makes crystal clear, the goal was never simple, peaceful protest. It was always intended to be violent. And of course, violence is what happened. So elaborate for us precisely who were the plaintiffs in this case in particular, and exactly what were they claiming? So our plaintiffs are the most courageous people I know. There are nine Charlottesville area community members who were injured in the violence that weekend. Some like Natalie Romero and Devin Willis and Liz Sines were University of Virginia students, either undergrads or law students at the time of the torch march. Natalie and Devin were two students who were surrounded at the Jefferson statue that night of the torch march and attacked and beaten. Others like Reverend Seth Wispelway had been peacefully protesting with fellow clergy members and was attacked. And many were actually injured in the car attack itself, including Marcus Martin and Marissa Blair, who were there with their friend Heather Heyer. Marcus is seen in that iconic Pulitzer-winning photo of the car going through the crowd in which he sprawled across the back wearing red sneakers and a white shirt. He had pushed Marissa out of the way. She still suffered some injuries, but not nearly as many as she likely would have had he not pushed her out of the way. Of course, their friend Heather Heyer was tragically killed in the attack, and Marcus himself suffered really extensive injuries, including a broken leg and ankle that he still is recovering from, never mind, of course, the emotional and psychological impacts they all suffered. In addition to Marcus and Marissa, a number of our plaintiffs were uh, hit by the car directly or otherwise injured in that attack, including Thomas Baker, Chelsea Alvarado, Natalie Romero, um, who was also one of the University of Virginia students attacked on Friday night. Liz Signs, April Muniz, um, and all of these people, in addition to the physical injuries they suffered, are, of course, still grappling with the psychological and emotional impacts of that attack. So I just think it's so courageous that they survived the unthinkable and decided to hold those responsible accountable, which meant for them 
over the course of the last few years, and especially over the course of this month-long trial, reliving the worst moments of their lives, in some cases questioned directly by the extremists responsible, um, and their courage in choosing to do that and fighting for accountability and justice by reliving these unthinkable moments that they survived um, is just endless, and I'm in awe of all of them. It's an amazing story, and congratulations, by the way, on your victory collectively in this month-long trial in which your plaintiffs won an over $26 million verdict against all the defendants. I'd like to ask you to help us understand the verdict specifically. Uh, Share with us why it's so impactful as a verdict, especially when I assume that no one's really going to pay the $26 million. Is that a, a correct assumption or am I wrong? Well, we are certainly committed to following these defendants around for the rest of their lives to collect on these judgments, not just any tangible um, money or assets that they might have. But you can also, um, in collecting on these judgments, do things like put liens on their homes or garnish wages or otherwise seize assets. And we know historically civil litigation like this in which large judgments have been one, have been remarkably effective in bankrupting and dismantling hate groups and their leaders because of those financial and operational impacts. And certainly even before trial, the defendants have said that this case has done as much. It's financially devastated them, to quote Richard Spencer. Um, It has effectively dismantled some of their hate groups already, even before trial. Richard Spencer told the Washington Post the day of the verdict that because of this case, the alt-right is effectively dead and buried. Um, And so seeing those sorts of impacts even before the verdict has been heartening. And now that we've won such a resounding, large uh, amount of damages on behalf of these plaintiffs, that impact will be infinitely greater. Um, And not only is it important in terms of making clear the consequences to these defendants for their violent hate, it's also important in deterring others who are looking on and seeing that if you participate in this sort of racist, violent, anti-Semitic conspiracy, there will be consequences. You will have major financial, legal, operational consequences, and there's remarkable impact in that. And the last thing I'll also say in terms of the impact of this verdict is that we've already seen how it's become a model for holding extremists accountable. There have been a number of lawsuits brought in the aftermath of ours, including one just recently by the D.C. Attorney General that are explicitly modeled on our lawsuit, taking on some of the extremists responsible for the January 6th insurrection. And so seeing how this case can not only have the major impacts it's had on our defendants, but really serve as a model for accountability and justice at a moment when it's so needed has been incredibly heartening for you know me and the entire team behind this. So I stand corrected. It's not that money will not be paid, even if the full $26 million doesn't end up getting paid. It's these organizations will lose their financial wherewithal to function, as well as certain individuals, in addition to all of these incredible downstream impacts of deterrence uh, that you spoke of. I want to ask on a more impressionistic level, after having worked so long with all of these plaintiffs and this complicated case, What struck you most? What have you walked away with after this experience and what has left you surprised and encouraged? I'll say a few things. I think first and foremost, this trial really pulled back the curtain on how these extremists operate. We not only had all of our plaintiffs testify, we didn't just put the defendants on the stand. 
We had expert witnesses testify who spoke about the tools, the tactics, the ideology at play here. We had Pete Simi, um, who worked with um, Kathy Blee on an incredible expert report, and we had Deborah Lipstadt, um, the foremost expert in anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, explained to the jury why anti-Semitism was so central to the violence in Charlottesville. And I think all of those experts really made clear what's at stake here, how um, when we hear things like Jews will not replace us, it really illustrates the deep-seated anti-Semitism that's at the core of white supremacy and that animates and fuels so many other forms of hate, including racism and xenophobia, this idea that Jews are the puppet masters orchestrating a replacement of the white race. And it tells me, and I hope others, that all of our fates are deeply intertwined. You can't take on one form of hate without taking on the others. And certainly the violence in Charlottesville illustrated that, as did the very ideology at the core of these um, defendants' actions. And then similarly, we had um, Pete Simi testify about the focus on optics, how these defendants are very specific and careful and how they go about things so that they can claim that when, for example, they talk about hitting protesters with cars, they were simply joking. Never mind the fact that, of course, a pro multiple protesters were, of course, hit directly by a car as part of the violence, directly encouraged and inspired by these conversations and chats in the lead up to Unite the Right. And so understanding how these extremists operate, their focus on optics, on creating plausible deniability that they were simply joking is so important because these are the same tactics that we're seeing over and over again. At a moment when Charlottesville ended up really being a preview or a harbinger of the extremism that's followed in this country, it's so important to understand how that extremism operates, how the cycle of violence continues because it's only by understanding these tools and these tactics that we can break that cycle, that we can make clear the consequences and we can, as we've been talking about, bankrupt, disrupt and dismantle these hate groups and their leaders. Um, and the second thing I'll say, the second takeaway, which relates to this first, is that we're not powerless in the face of extremism. I hope this case made very clear that we can use the tools we have to take action. At a moment when it can feel really daunting, we can all feel really hopeless and powerless in the face of rising extremism, rising hate crimes. There are ways that we can act. There's so much more that needs to happen in this country, but I think this case made very clear that this sort of violent hate has no place here. You previously mentioned that this case will provide an important model for the prosecution of the insurrection on January 6th at the Capitol. I'd like to ask you to elaborate a bit on that by telling us how so, how does this case help inform the January 6th case? And secondarily, what is different about it? What does not apply? How does the January 6th case really differ? I think it's important to understand the direct line that runs from Charlottesville to the Capitol insurrection. As I've mentioned, Charlottesville really was a harbinger of the violence that followed, the ways in which these extremists operate. And so when you look at what happened on January 6th, so many of the same tools and tactics were used, the use of social media to plan the violence, individuals and organizations played crucial roles there. Certainly some of the messaging and ideology that we saw 
this idea of stopping the steal of our country is very much rooted in the same idea of some sort of conspiracy to undermine the white Christian nation that many of the defendants in our lawsuit saw, this replacement idea. And so understanding the connections that run from Charlottesville to the Capitol and, of course, the many acts of extremism we've seen in between, including Pittsburgh, Poway, El Paso, generally rising hate crimes in the United States and so much more. And now certainly attacks on public health and election officials and others. And so in order to understand how our case can really be a model, it's important to understand the sad similarities as we've seen extremism metastasize and in some ways become more normalized over the last four years. Um, but we are seeing how our case really has created that model. The D.C. Attorney General, in partnership with a number of organizations um, and pro bono law firms, just brought a lawsuit against the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and a number of their members modeled on our lawsuit over January 6th. And this is a civil lawsuit that, much like ours, can take on the finances and operations of these extremist groups and their leaders. And that is important, of course, because we know that when you make it really financially and operationally painful to participate in this sort of extremism, it not only helps stop those directly responsible, but it helps serve as a deterrent as well. And so seeing these cases come out that are explicitly modeled on ours and in some cases use the same statutes as ours is heartening because it illustrates that we can use civil litigation as a powerful tool. It's not a silver bullet. There's so much more we need to do on the criminal level in terms of not just federal prosecutions, but making sure state and local officials are effectively prosecuting hate crimes, the deterrent um, and de-radicalization and education levels, resiliency to make sure that we are helping to prevent people from being radicalized in the first place. And certainly when it comes to the private sector and making sure that social media is living up to its own ethical obligations in the space rather than allowing itself to really serve as effectively the clan den of the 21st century. And so there's so much that we need to do, but civil litigation has historically been very powerful in taking on extremists if you look back to the 80s and 90s. And certainly now, as our case is made clear, it can have significant impacts financially, operationally, legally on these defendants that make it very clear what the consequences will be for participating in this sort of violent hate. Integrity First America and you clearly are dedicated to powerfully changing the conversation around violence and supremacy in this country. How can we, who also care about those issues, help? What else can we do to help ensure accountability for these groups and, um, as you described before, deterrence? Yeah, well, look, there's so much that we can do. It's so easy to feel helpless in a moment like this when we're facing record level extremism and hate crimes. And certainly I know I even feel that way uh, at times, but we are not powerless. And I think figuring out the tools we have to take action, whatever that might be, that's what our team did here. Um, we have an incredible legal team led by Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn and a number of others who made this lawsuit possible um, by finding the tools we had in our legal system to take on extremism. Um, and at 
Integrity First for America, we were just so thrilled to partner with them and our courageous plaintiffs to bring this forward. But you don't have to bring a lawsuit to make a mark in this space. Certainly get involved by supporting organizations, supporting organizations like Integrity First for America and the so many other nonprofits and advocacy organizations working in this space to fight extremism and protect our democracy. Hold your elected officials to account, making sure that they are living up to their obligations. And as consumers, we have power as well in terms of holding social media companies and others to account in terms of platforming extremism and making sure that they are not doing so. And for some social media companies that have built the entire business models on extremism, making sure web hosting companies, domain registration companies aren't giving um, those sites a platform. There's a lot that we can do as consumers, as advocates, as constituents. And using our voice to keep the alarm bells ringing on the crisis of extremism in this country is so important. But if folks want to learn more about this case specifically and get involved with IFA, you can go to integrityfirstforamerica.org, where we have a wealth of resources, including a ton of information from the trial itself, the expert reports we've been talking about, news clips, um, and a ton of other information um, that I think is important, not just to understanding what happened um, in court and the victory we had, but also um, the ways in which these extremists operate and the tools we have to fight back. Well, to you, Amy Spatalnik and your colleague, Roberta Kaplan, and your teams and your incredible work. Again, thank you and the heartiest of congratulations. And here's to the shared work of fighting racism and hate in our country and working for a, a more perfect democracy. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash huc connect.